early 1919 found young American writer John Dos Passos traveling around France. He had arrived in Europe in 1917 when he signed up as a volunteer ambulance driver. He later served with the Red Cross in Northern Italy and the U.S. Army Medical Corps in France. He was staying in Belfort, a town in northeastern France near the Swiss border, so close to the front lines during the war that shells had fallen on the city. Before dawn one morning, Dos Passos went to a bakery. In the flickering gaslight, he noticed what he called the usual portrait of Wilson on the wall. Dos Passos had seen the face of Wilson in shops and homes across Europe. In Germany, Wilson's portrait replaced that of the Kaiser. In Italy, women lit candles in front of his image, as if he were a saint. The old woman working at the bakery noticed Dos Passos looking at Wilson. Her eyes shone. He will save us all, she said. Dos Passos must have looked doubtful because she went on, You don't like war, do you, you Americans? You will see to it that there is never a war again. That's what only he understands. That's why he and his Americans will end wars. That was the kind of hope Woodrow Wilson brought to Europe in 1919, hope that he would end war forever. This is the year that was 1919. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. This is the first of several episodes about the 1919 Peace Conference. That's more than I originally planned, but so much happened at the conference or because of the conference that I had to give it room. It's crazy sauce how this one event shaped the world. We're going to start with President Woodrow Wilson. Do you remember in the first Avengers movie when Loki appears out of nowhere, kills a whole bunch of guards, and then says this. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. That's Woodrow Wilson. He was completely 100% convinced that he had been put on Earth to do amazing things. And he felt really sorry for himself about that. No one understood the burden of being Woodrow Wilson. I mean, yeah, massive crowds greeted him wherever he went. He was hailed as a hero in Ireland, in India, Egypt, and China. People in tiny Italian villages lit candles under his portrait. But people back home weren't always so kind. They asked him mean questions, and they frowned a lot. The worst were the Republican senators who had recently gained control of the U.S. Senate. They didn't seem to appreciate Wilson's glorious purpose at all. Nor did European leaders, particularly British Prime Minister David Lloyd George and French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau. They didn't treat him with reverence. They didn't even laugh at his jokes. It was really hurtful. But he soldiered on because he was Woodrow Wilson. He and he alone could save the world. Am I being unfair? 
Eh, maybe. Wilson wasn't a terrible person, and he wasn't a terrible president. Surveys of historians usually rank him among the best, in fact. Not up there with Lincoln and Washington, but somewhere between 6th and 11th place. But 1919 was a hard year for Wilson, a year when both his best and worst qualities were on display. It ended up being both the best and the worst year of his life. Wilson was born in Virginia in 1856 and spent his early years in Georgia and the Carolinas. He was trained as a historian, taught at Princeton, and in 1902 became president of the university. He was good at the job and helped make Princeton one of America's most respected universities. However, he hit resistance in 1907 when he introduced a plan to reorganize the university. The conflict brought out an unpleasant side of Wilson's character. He knew he was right, and if you didn't agree with him, you were not just incorrect or misguided, but wrong. Wilson was a pure and shining force for good, so his enemies had to be the embodiment of evil. This was not only insulting to his opponents, it also made compromise impossible. Wilson couldn't find middle ground with his enemies. That would be countenancing evil, colluding with sin. It made him incredibly inflexible and what one of his speechwriters called a good hater. With his academic career on the skids, Wilson got involved with politics. In 1910, he ran for governor of New Jersey and won. In 1912, he was nominated as the Democratic Party candidate for president. That year was a three-way race, with Wilson running against the Republican Taft and third-party candidate Teddy Roosevelt. Taft and Roosevelt ended up splitting the Republican vote, and Wilson won the White House. Wilson's first term was all about reform, tariff reform, currency reform, banking reform, both the Federal Reserve Bank System and the Federal Trade Commission were created under Wilson. It was really a remarkable run. Wilson was originally determined to keep the U.S. neutral in World War I. If you're curious exactly how the U.S. entered the war, I will point you to last week's bonus episode called Our Fathers Lied. If Wilson couldn't prevent the war, he could darn well make sure it ended on his terms. That meant taking a major role in the post-war peace conference. The peace conference would be a meeting to determine the future of the world. That sounds overinflated, like it couldn't possibly have been that big of a deal. But no, it was the biggest of big deals. Britain, France, and the USA literally decided the future of the world. Wilson departed for Europe on December 4th, 1918, less than a month after the armistice. Fun fact, he was the first U.S. president to travel outside of the country during his term in office. We're used to presidents dashing all over the world today, but in 1918, it was shocking. It still took more than a week to make the voyage to France. People asked, what if an emergency struck at home? Couldn't Wilson send a representative to negotiate on his behalf? But Wilson didn't trust anyone else to do the job. He considered his personal attendance at the conference essential to the future of humanity. He and he alone could impose the right kind of peace. He was greeted with a kind of rapture. When he sailed into the French harbor, hysterical crowds met his ship. He traveled at night to reach Paris, and all night long, people stood along the tracks in the countryside cheering as the cars rattled by. Many brought their children. They wanted them to witness this moment, the moment Woodrow Wilson arrived to save the world. 
Why the love? Why the portraits that John Dos Passos noticed all over Europe? Why did an elderly baker in northern France say he will save us all? Because Wilson brought to Europe the promise of a different kind of peace, a promise expressed in his 14 points. Wilson had announced the 14 points on January 8, 1918, in a speech to Congress. They were a statement of principles that he believed would be a basis for a just and lasting peace. We're going to talk more about the 14 points over the next few weeks. We're going to talk a lot more about the 14 points. And I've put the entire text of the points up on the website if you'd like to read it. Right now, the most important point of the 14 points is the 14th point, the one that called for the establishment of the League of Nations. The idea of the League of Nations inspired hope around the world. It was intended to be an association of nations dedicated to preventing future wars. The League was Wilson's baby and his number one priority at the peace conference. Everything else, the terms of the treaty with Germany, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, what to do about Russia, all of that was of secondary importance. In fact, the settlement of these and many other issues didn't really matter to Wilson. If the peace conference got something wrong, the League of Nations could fix it later. In fact, the settlement of these and many other issues didn't really matter to Wilson. If the peace conference got something wrong, the League of Nations could fix it later. No big deal. And then the world could enjoy eternal peace, courtesy Woodrow Wilson. That winter, Paris was cold and signs of war were everywhere. There were shell holes in the Tuileries. But the flood of delegates for the conference brought life to the city. All of the grand hotels were crammed with diplomats, academic experts, press liaisons, spies. There were endless receptions, parties, and costume balls. There were snowball fights on the Champs-Élysées. Among the younger delegates, it had the feel of summer camp or a semester abroad, complete with love affairs between junior diplomats and Red Cross nurses. The conference officially opened on January 18th. Delegates representing 27 nations were assigned to 52 commissions, which held a staggering 1,646 sessions. However, all the big decisions were made by three men, Wilson, Prime Minister David Lloyd George of Britain, and Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau of France. Representatives of Italy and Japan were also included in the top-level discussions, but they were definitely junior partners. Lloyd George was chatty. Clemenceau was gruff. Wilson sometimes made jokes that the Europeans didn't understand and didn't laugh at. On the whole, the Europeans thought Wilson was pretty annoying. Clemenceau was particularly irritated by Wilson's idealism and sanctimoniousness. He once scoffed, and you have to imagine this in French, what ignorance of Europe and how difficult all understandings were with him. He believed you could do everything by formulas and his 14 points. God himself was content with Ten Commandments. Wilson modestly inflicted 14 points on us. Wilson's first order of business was naturally the League of Nations. Lloyd George and Clemenceau were fine with the League, but they didn't put much faith in it. They were more interested in the sort of concrete decisions that would advance their national interests, like stripping Germany of its army or taking over the former territories of the Ottoman Empire. They let Wilson do what he wanted because that would give them leverage in negotiations over what they really wanted. 
Not everyone at the conference was so cynical about the league. Many delegates, especially the war veterans, found the league inspirational and exhilarating. British diplomat Harold Nicholson said, We were preparing not peace only, but eternal peace. There was about us the halo of some divine mission, for we were bent on doing great, permanent, and noble things. I talked in the first episode about the attitude of hope that many felt after the war. The League of Nations was one place where that hope found expression. The League brought out what were probably Wilson's best qualities. He believed human beings could be just, honorable, fair-minded, He genuinely thought that nations could come together and make life better for everyone. There's an optimism in Wilson that is touching. Clemenceau and Lloyd George found it naive, and perhaps they were right. But isn't there something inspirational about Wilson's faith in the innate goodness of humankind? On the other hand, Wilson's high-mindedness could also be crazy-making. He refused to address details. People had lots of questions about the League. How exactly would it stop wars? How would it enforce its orders? Would it have its own military? Or would it concentrate on soft power, to use a contemporary term? Wilson met all demands for specificity with vague statements of principle. It made some very annoying meetings, where Wilson sat at the head of the table and blathered on about peace and justice, while the committee really wanted to talk about organization charts. Finally, some conference delegates went off on their own and drafted a plan for the League. In very basic terms, it asserted that member states were expected to respect the territorial integrity of other nations. Conflicts would be submitted for arbitration to a new court of international justice. League decisions were to be achieved by consensus. The plan wasn't super detailed, but at least it put some meat on the bones. Wilson accepted the plan as if it had come down from Mount Sinai rather than typed up by some secretary eager to finish for the day so she could go dancing with that cute guy from the Polish delegation. He immediately declared all of the provisions of the plan perfect as written and needing no refinements, amendments, or revisions. He also insisted on calling it not a charter or a constitution, but rather the covenant of the League of Nations. This made it sound kind of biblical, and Wilson, the son of a Presbyterian minister, loved it. Wilson presented the covenant of the League of Nations to the assembled delegates on February 14th. Many historians have called this the high point of his life. His League seemed set to become the guiding force in international affairs and would no doubt improve the life of every individual on the planet. Wilson had always dreamed of doing great things. Now his glorious purpose seemed on the verge of being fulfilled. The evening of the day he unveiled the League Covenant, Wilson took a train to the coast to board a ship that would take him back home. It would just be a short visit, but Congress would adjourn on March 3rd, and Wilson needed to be on hand to sign appropriations bills. He left France and arrived in Boston on the 25th. But Wilson would need to do more than sign a few bills. Not everyone at home was on board with Wilson's glorious purpose. Key Republican politicians were starting to express their doubts about the League. It's important to note that most of Wilson's time in office, his party, the Democrats, had controlled both the House and Senate, so the president was used to getting whatever he wanted out of Congress. 
However, on November 5th, 1918, so six days before the armistice, voters had kicked out the Democrats and brought in a Republican majority in both houses. Wilson then had to face committed opponents like Senate Majority Leader and Chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, Henry Cabot Lodge. Lodge despised Wilson. He told a friend back in 1912 that Wilson had no intellectual integrity at all and later said, I never expected to hate anyone in politics with the hatred I feel for Wilson. Wilson's trip home began with an easily avoided PR disaster. Wilson had made a deal with Congress not to talk about the League of Nations until he had discussed it with members of the House and Senate. So what's the first thing Wilson did when he landed in Boston? He gave a speech about the League of Nations. He started out in his usual highfalutin terms intoning, Now we will make men free. If he had shut up at that point, he might have gotten away with it, but he didn't shut up. Instead, he decided to get in a dig at those questioning the work going on in Paris. The United States should not limit itself to those narrow, selfish, provincial purposes which seem so dear to some minds that have no sweep beyond the nearest horizon. Well, Henry Cabot Lodge did not appreciate being called narrow, selfish, or provincial. And worse, Wilson had said this in Boston. Lodge was from Boston. Wilson had come into his house and called him narrow, selfish, and provincial. It was on. The next day, Wilson hosted a dinner at the White House for congressmen, they were all men, to discuss progress in Paris and the finer points of the League of Nations. It was a bust. Wilson lectured the congressmen as if they were dim-witted undergraduates who had not done the reading. Matters did not improve the rest of the visit home. In the words of one historian, the president was in the United States only nine days, doing about as much damage to his cause as was possible in such a short time. The more questions senators asked about the league, the more angry Wilson became. By the end of the trip, he was calling the opposition contemptible and bemoaning their poor little minds. The opposition to the League of Nations is usually explained as isolationism. That's certainly what I was taught in high school, but that's too simple. Yes, some opponents were straight-up isolationists who wanted the United States to withdraw completely from international affairs. But many, including Lodge, had genuine concerns about the constitutionality of the League. They especially fixated on Article 10 of the Covenant. It pledged members of the League to defend one another from enemy attack. The text spoke of an obligation to preserve against external aggression the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League. Well, what did that mean? Did Article 10 require American soldiers to be sent to war at the command of the League? Because the U.S. Constitution clearly states that only Congress can declare war, not some diplomats in Geneva. Wilson waved away all questions. Once the League was in operation, he said, all of this could be worked out. Lodge and his allies replied that wasn't good enough. They asked if Wilson could propose amendments to the Covenant to address American concerns. Wilson replied the Covenant was perfect as it was written. Wilson ended his trip home with a speech in New York's Metropolitan Opera House. He used the opportunity to rip into Lodge and other League doubters, declaring himself amazed by the narrowness of his opponents, their comprehensive ignorance of the state of the world, and 
their doctrine of careful selfishness. And then he got on a ship and sailed back to France, leaving a very angry Senate behind. The next several weeks of the peace conference were devoted to hammering out peace terms with Germany. Very little attention was paid to the League of Nations, except by Wilson. Wilson made a big decision. He decided to compromise. A little, just just a little. He decided to make some changes to the League Covenant to placate Republican senators. He proposed four amendments that would make clear a few points. For example, that the League couldn't interfere with the domestic affairs of member nations, and that members were free to quit the League at any time. Wilson would have rather hit himself in the head with a hammer than ask Lloyd George and Clemenceau to accept these amendments. He hated having to ask anyone for anything, but this was particularly painful because he had been carrying on about the perfection of the League Covenant for weeks. The French and the British really had no problem with the amendments, although they secretly rubbed their hands together with glee that Wilson had asked them for a favor. Tit must always be for tat, and now they got to claw some concessions out of him. But that's a story for next week. Wilson's amendments were accepted, the covenant was finalized, and the League of Nations was established by the Treaty of Versailles on June 28, 1919. Wilson immediately returned to the United States. And by immediately, I mean he didn't even stay in Paris long enough to have dinner with the French president, thus prompting a minor diplomatic incident. Wilson didn't care. He had accomplished his glorious purpose. Now he could let slip the burden and do some well-earned strutting about accepting applause. Except that's not what happened. Opposition to the League had only strengthened while Wilson was in France. Wilson's great concessions, those four painful amendments, hadn't improved the situation at all. It's not just that they didn't move the needle on Senate opposition. The needle didn't even twitch. Wilson was furious. He had had to beg the French and British for a favor, and it hadn't made a whit of difference. That was the last time Wilson agreed to compromise on anything. Opposition to the League fell into a few camps. Some senators hated the very idea of the League and wouldn't have voted for it no matter what. They were known as the Irreconcilables. They claimed that the League would force America into wars not of its choosing, thus violating the U.S. Constitution and squandering American lives in foolish European ventures. One of the most vociferous irreconcilables was Senator Hiram Johnson, a Republican from California. In a speech on September 17, 1919, he said, The President has made and asked the Senate to approve a League covenant that is to be higher than our Constitution. Except the sovereign people, no power on earth can legally change our Constitution or make another to override it. None but the people should be permitted to throw this independent republic into an international confederation where it must necessarily lose its independence of action. The great fundamental question which every American father and mother should answer is, shall American boys police the world? Shall American blood uphold old world governments and the territorial integrity of the nations which have immensely increased their boundaries? That's an actor reading Johnson's words in a production for the series Great Senate Debates by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate. Others were concerned about the details of the League Covenant and suggested certain reservations be attached to its passage. They became known as the Reservationists. 
Henry Cabot Lodge was among the reservationists. He also worried that the United States would become embroiled in European affairs and feared that internationalism would weaken the very character of the United States. Lodge sounds entirely concerned with big issues of policy and national interest, but the fight for him was also personal. He was furious at Wilson and sabotaged the league just to get under the president's skin. He dragged out debate in the Senate, holding weeks of committee hearings that aired a wide variety of complaints about the league. He even had the entire 400-something page treaty read out loud just to take up time and delay the proceedings. Wilson was losing this fight, so he decided to take his case to the public. After all, had not thousands cheered him as he departed for Europe? Had not thousands more greeted him in France? Remember the whole thing with the portrait and the candles? He planned a four-week speaking tour that would carry him across the United States. This trip would have been grueling for anyone, but Wilson was not a healthy man. He had never been very healthy, and he had suffered several strokes over the previous 20 years. In France, he had a bad bout of illness, perhaps another stroke, perhaps a cold, perhaps the Spanish flu. People who saw Wilson commented on how terrible he looked. A British diplomat said, I was shocked by his appearance. His face was drawn and of a gray color and frequently twitching in a pitiful effort to control nerves which had broken down. Nevertheless, Wilson, along with his wife and his personal doctor, Carrie Grayson, headed out on September 4th. St. Louis, Des Moines, Omaha, Sioux Falls, Minneapolis, and every location he gave a rousing speech on the importance of the League. Sometimes he bemoaned what would happen if the League didn't succeed. Quote, I can predict with absolute certainty that within another generation, there will be another world war if the nations of the world, if the League of Nations does not prevent it by concerted action. Sometimes in 1919, people made these eerily correct predictions, this was one of those moments. Anyway, Wilson kept going. Seattle, San Francisco, San Diego, Ogden, Utah. News reached the president that Lodge's Senate Foreign Relations Committee had sent the treaty to the full Senate with a total of 45 amendments and four reservations. Wilson fumed. His speeches grew angrier. Soon he was implying that opposition to the League amounted to support for Germany. Three weeks into the tour, he was suffering severe headaches and struggling to breathe. In Pueblo, Colorado, he collapsed. His doctor ordered the rest of the tour canceled. His train rushed back to Washington. Four days later, early on the morning of October 2nd, Wilson suffered a massive stroke. He was entirely paralyzed on his left side. There now begins one of the strangest periods of the United States presidency, for months, Wilson was utterly incapacitated. Access to the president was strictly controlled by his wife Edith and Dr. Grayson. It was obvious Wilson was incapable of governing, but Mrs. Wilson refused to tell the public the seriousness of his condition. The Constitution was no help. It stated power would pass to the vice president if the president was unable to discharge the duties of his office. But the founders had left no instructions on how to go about removing an incapacitated president. And anyway, Mrs. Wilson and Dr. Grayson refused to admit there was a problem. Some members of Congress urged the vice president to claim the presidency, but he declined to take such a step. 
The situation would be very different today. The 25th Amendment, adopted in 1967, provides a process for the vice president to assume the office if the president becomes incapacitated. But with no one else to do it, Edith Wilson seems to have made many critical decisions herself, although she always claimed she was simply executing the wishes of her husband. Wilson's condition was so serious, this seems doubtful. Some historians have suggested that in a weird, unconstitutional way, Edith Wilson was the first woman president of the United States. The battle over the League of Nations went on without Wilson. His strongest supporters were outraged that Republicans continued to attack the president even after he fell ill. They portrayed the president as a martyr to the cause of justice who had sacrificed himself for peace. Here's an excerpt of a speech by Homer S. Cummings, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. I'll warn you, the audio quality is pretty bad, but this is an actual recording from 1919, and you take what you can get. The president made every sacrifice, even of health itself, for the cause of peace. Following the superhuman labors of seven years of unexampled service, this meant the wreck of his health, sickness for months upon a bed of pain, and worse than the physical sickness, the sickness of heart, which comes from the knowledge that political adversaries lost to the larger sense of things, are savagely destroying not merely the work of men's hands, but the world's hope of settled peace. This was the affliction. This the crucifixion. Lodge made one last attempt to form a coalition of Democrats and reservationist Republicans to pass a treaty with a limited number of reservations. But the president, or more likely the president's wife, rejected the compromise. It all came to a head on November 19th, the day of the vote. One of the irreconcilables, Senator William Bora, took to the floor of the Senate and gave a blistering speech attacking the League. Sir, we are told that this treaty means peace. Even so, I would not pay the price. Would you purchase peace at the cost of any part of our independence? Peace upon any other basis than national independence, peace purchased at the cost of any part of our national integrity, is fit only for slaves. Americanism shall not, cannot die. The noble face of the father of this country, so familiar to every boy, and girl, looking out from the walls of the Capitol in stern reproach, will call those who come here for public service to a reckoning. That's an actor reading Bora's words from the Great Senate Debate series. I put a link to the video on the website. Many senators were deeply moved by Bora's speech. Lodge was brought to tears. And then the vote went ahead. The irreconcilables voted alongside the Democrats who stood by their president and refused to accept the treaty with reservations. The U.S. would never join the League of Nations. Woodrow Wilson's glorious purpose had turned to dust. Well, not completely. The League of Nations had been approved by the signatories at the peace conference. The United States would never be a member, but the League went ahead. It held its first meeting on January 16, 1920. The League of Nations is generally perceived as a failure. It certainly didn't bring eternal peace. It was helpless in the face of aggression from Germany and Japan in the 1930s. 
but it wasn't a complete waste of time. It was the first attempt at anything of the kind, and I, I think we can applaud the idea. It helped give a voice to small nations and peacefully resolved a handful of international disputes. The League campaigned to end child labor and advocated the rights of women in the workplace. It made strides in limiting the spread of leprosy, malaria, and yellow fever. Efforts were undertaken to eradicate slavery and to protect refugees and prisoners of war. The League was dissolved in April 1946 and replaced with the United Nations. The UN also has its flaws and failures, although it tried to learn from the mistakes of the League. Wilson's vision of a benevolent association of nations with the power to prevent war has yet to be realized. As for Wilson, he began to hold a few meetings in the spring of 1920, but these only made it clear how frail he had become. In late February 1920, he received news he had been awarded the 1919 Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Committee specifically cited Wilson's 14 points. Wilson's health was far too fragile to allow him to travel to Oslo. If Wilson's body had weakened, his ego had not. In fact, some historians suggest his mind had been affected by the stroke. He believed that he was still the best candidate for the Democratic Party and clung to the hope that he would be nominated for a third term. This would have been unprecedented. No president had served for more than two terms. Franklin Roosevelt was the first and last president to be elected for a record four terms before Congress swooped in with a constitutional amendment in 1947 that mandated the two-term limit. In any case, the idea was absurd. Wilson was in no state to run for president, let alone serve. In 1920, Democrat James N. Cox ran against Republican Warren G. Harding, and Harding won. Wilson was too weak to even attend the inauguration ceremony. He and Edith moved to a mansion in Washington. He rarely saw anyone outside of his family, although he persisted in believing that the country would come around, re-elect him president, and join the League of Nations. He died believing that on February 3rd, 1924. The portraits of Wilson had long been taken down in the shops and homes of Europe. People realized Wilson was no savior. He was just a man, a man with great faith in the potential of humankind, but a man nonetheless. He couldn't convince the leaders of Europe to set aside their national interests any more than he could convince the senators of his own nation to set aside their doubts about yoking the United States to the rest of the world. It's easy today to see how both Wilson's opponents were wrong. If the American senators had welcomed a new role for the United States in the world, the U.S. might have curbed some of the worst impulses of its allies and successfully confronted the rise of fascism. I mean, maybe? You've got to imagine a whole lot of might-have-beens to believe that a U.S.-backed league could possibly, if the stars had aligned, prevented the Second World War. What I'm trying to say is that it's very, very unlikely. But maybe? And yet, Wilson's own personality got in the way over and over again. He had a great message, but oy, the messenger... If Wilson had seen beyond his own self-regard in dealing with figures like Henry Cabot Lodge, the United States would have joined the League. He was presented with endless opportunities to compromise. Even Edith Wilson wanted to give in to Lodge's reservations, or at least so she claimed in her memoirs. While Wilson was recovering from his stroke, she said to her husband, For my sake, won't you accept these reservations and get this awful thing settled? 
the president shook his head, better a thousand times to go down fighting. Better for who? You and your ego? I should say that it's entirely possible that this conversation never happened and that Edith Wilson made the whole thing up. This exchange would have had to happen in early November, and it's not clear that Wilson was even able to speak at that point. In any case, you can't pin it all on Lodge and the Republicans. Wilson was too obsessed with the burden of his glorious purpose to meet anyone halfway. He engineered his own defeat. Remember where we started with John Dos Passos and the great faith Europeans had placed in Wilson? In Dos Passos' essay, he talked about the old woman at the bakery who said of Wilson, he and his Americans will end wars. Dos Passos said, There was not a word I could say to her, for already the false dawn was fading. Europe had turned to America full of extravagant hopes, like a sick man that has stored all his faith in a quack doctor. When no remedy appeared, the faith turned suddenly to hatred. Perhaps the hatred is no more justified than was the extravagant hope. Perhaps not, but it was a wasted opportunity all the same. So next week, we're going to return to the peace conference and talk about the terms of the peace treaty with Germany. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end well. Thanks so much for listening to The Year That Was, 1919. Make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And leave a rating or review if you are so inclined. Check out the website at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for photos and links. And join us over at the Facebook page. Just search up The Year That Was Podcast and we'll talk about this episode. Let me know what you think about this question. Would the League of Nations have been more successful if the United States had joined in 1919? Thanks so much for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was, 1919.